All right, we will go ahead and get started for our next attribute. Now, to start today, I'm going to put you on a on the spot and give you a little group pop quiz. Easy, yes or no. I'm going to read a quote. And by the way, I'm sitting up here because an unnamed person, a person who shall not be named, accidentally took the clicker home on Sunday. Someone took the clicker home on Sunday, so I need to be able to touch the computer. So that's why I'm sitting up here. Somebody accidentally took the, uh, the remote home. Person who shall not be named, I said. I don't, I don't want people to know that it was Jesse Boggs, so I'm not going to say his name. He accidentally took... <laughs> but, so I'm going to read a quote. If you saw it already, then you're probably already going to know. And I just want you to affirm, is this Orthodox Christian theology? Is this good theology? Yes, we agree with this or not. In order to understand the subject of the dead for consolation for those who mourn the loss of their friends, it is necessary that we should understand the character and being of God and how he came to be so. For I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. <laughs> yeah, so it's easy. That is Joseph Smith. That is Joseph Smith. So this is uh, standard Mormon theology that God, the God that we worship, the God who created this particular world, was at one time a man on a different world. And he was a man who achieved exaltation and then became a God. And then when he became a God, he inherited his own world and then he made this world that we're in now. And that's why the goal for Mormons today, at least for Mormon men today, is to become a God and inherit the world. And that's what Joseph Smith taught in this sermon. This was at a funeral. Um, there was a man who was a, a kind of a governor. They called King back then. He was a governor who passed away. And at his funeral, Joseph Smith delivered the most famous sermon he ever preached, King Follett's Discourse. When King Follett died, and he began by talking about in order for us to be comforted and, uh, who, and, and are lost, we need to know where they've gone and we need to know about God. We know about the afterlife. And he was convinced all of the American evangelicals were wrong about the afterlife. And so he wanted to refute this common notion about God. And we already discussed one of these. We looked at, talked about God's eternity. That's what we looked at last week. And so obviously Joseph Smith denies that. At least he denies that God was God as God in eternity. Whoever, whoever the God is that we worship, he would say has et eternally existed because Mormons believe everyone has eternally existed. But he has not eternally existed as God. And so he went from a change. He went from being a non-divine man to becoming God. And so that is what we are looking at today. Uh, the attribute of God known as immutability. That we Orthodox Christians affirm that God is immutable, which means that he does not change. Definition of immutability is that God cannot change. We see from Psalm 103, Of old you lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. 
So there, Psalm 103 is not only talking about God's eternality, that he is, will always exist and never go away, but to, to affirm that God will never go away is more than just affirming he's eternal. It's affirming he can't change. It's affirming he can't move from one state of being to a different state of being. God cannot change. And that's why even the verse, it doesn't just say that he will, his years have no end. It says that as his ears, years have no end, so within that eternal lifespan of God, he stays the same. The immutability of God is that God does not change. Specifically, because we're going to try to qualify it as the night goes on. We're talking about God's very essence. His being cannot change. There might be, and we're going to look at different ways in which you can kind of think about God's relationship to things changing, but God's essence cannot change. His being cannot be anything but what it is. So one of the things we're going to see is that all created things are mutable. Uh, God is immutable. Everything that isn't God is mutable. There is nothing other than God that you can look at or even conceive of that cannot change. God is the only being, the only thing that is immutable. And so we call this attribute of God one of his incommunicable attributes. So when we look at all of the attributes of God, you can break them up into two categories. There are God's communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. And those are just big words which cover very simple ideas. A communicable attribute is something God communicates to us meaning it's something that you should be also. Now, obviously, none of God's attributes are things we can be to the fullness the way he is, but we can still occupy them to some degree. So, for example, God exists. That was the first attribute we looked at, God's existence. You exist. So you and God share that attribute in common. Now, obviously, you don't exist the way God does. You're not eternal, you know, so there's still a difference. Uh, God does not receive his existence from anywhere else. You do receive your existence. So even the communicable attributes we're not saying is like a perfect one-to-one -one correlation, but it's just the idea of God's like this, and so you should try to be like this too. God exists, therefore you should exist. God is love, therefore you should be loving. You should be love, right? God is merciful, so you should be merciful. Those are communicable attributes. But God has some attributes that we couldn't even pretend to participate in, that we could never even pretend like, God expects us to join in with this, right? So last week was a, an incommunicable attribute, eternality. God does not expect you to be eternal. You can't. That's not something he shares. In, immutability, God's inability to change, this is an incommunicable attribute. You could not even pretend to think that you are something that does not change because by definition, all created things by definition, are changeable because you, went, you already have gone through the greatest change anything can possibly go through. And that's moving from the state of non-existence to existence. Anything that comes into being is by definition mutable because you had to come into being. That's an incredible change. So all created things are mutable, but it doesn't just stop there. That's not where we leave it. We change in a whole host of ways. We could not spend the rest of our night even exhausting all the different ways that we fundamentally change. I've given the example in the past in one of these classes, even, you know, I've, I've noticed this being a first-time father. Matthew today is nothing 
like Matthew will be, Lord willing, he lives this long in 20 years. He will be an entirely different person. He will behave differently. He will think differently. He will look differently. So every single one of us over the life, our lifetime have gone through a fundamental change, change in your character, change in your appearance, change in your thoughts. We go through incredible change. And here's what's even more amazing. Just on a day-to-day basis, you go through an immense amount of change at a biological, emotional, spiritual level. You learn things on a day-to-day basis. That's a change. You used to know something or used to not know something, now you do. You have skin cells that literally die. Like we have, we have cells in our body that are falling off and dying all the time. Your body, your physical body is essentially remaking itself at all times. So you're physically dying and, and making new cells. You're learning new things. Emotionally, you might, have, you might be really, really happy and then someone calls you with a tragedy and you are depressed, and you're sad, that is a, that's a very fundamental change in your very character, in your personality. So human beings are extremely mutable, extremely mutable, and all created things are mutable. No matter how big a tree is, it can always be cut down. No matter how big that mountain is, the wind can weather it, right? Everything that is created either is going through change or at least has the potential to go through fundamental change. God not only does not change, but he cannot. He has no potential to move from one state of existence to a different kind of state of existence. So let's just talk a little bit before we start getting into some difficult details. Let's just kind of go through some scripture passages where we see this concept of God not changing. I said last week we're going to talk a lot about the name I am. Because that, in that name, Yahweh, I am, communicates so many of God's attributes. And this is one of them, right? God just says that his name is I am. So in every generation, he is. So his name is telling us his perpetual state of being. Like, notice God's name is not I was. Moses asks Pharaoh, who, who, who should I say sent me? Well, I used to be like this, but now I'm like this. Right? He's not the great I was. He's not the great I will be. I'm not that great right now, Moses, but let me tell you, I'm charging up. I'm hooked up to my power station. I'm charging, and trust me, I am going to, by the time you get to Egypt, I'm going to be really powerful, right? He's not the God who was, who will be. He's not the God who may be. He is. I am. In every generation, I am. So his, his name being in the constant present tense is communicating to us and to Moses that he always is that thing. There's no change there. Jesse. We live in the present, but the present really actually is in a state for us. It's, I'm constantly moving forward. Every second is in the past now. And, and, you know, I, I live in the present, but I'm not really in the present. I, I can't live there. That's right. I lives in this present that's outside time that's removed. And so, um, you know, I think about the great verses, you know, who is and is to come. Like just this, this notion that, that time is bent around him. Yes. That, and that is a really good point that Jesse made too. It's, and I've never thought about this. I'd like, I, I bet there's some great books about this. But when, even when we talk about the present, in what sense do we ever really occupy the present? Because even like when I say a word, that word has to travel to you. So by the time my voice gets to you, it's already passed. 
Like, so you never experience another person's words presently. You always experience them. Now, I guess it's present to you in the sense that it hits it, but then the second it does hit it, you're already moved past it, right? So we're kind of just like constantly in the past almost. It's, it's really weird how do we even define present, but, but God truly is the one who is actually present all the time, everywhere. present is able to speak for us in ways that we can't understand because often uh, I was at conference and the one thing that I got out of it, it was on marriage was, um, you know, when your spouse is speaking and particularly when you're in an argument, you are already five, six, seven words ahead of the sentence because your brain is processing it to where you're already trying to decide what she's saying so therefore you can respond. And so often, you know, marriages, when you get a fight, you're not listening to one another, you're, you're talking over each other's Say, but, you know, even that since we, we can't even focus on the present that's right Yes, yeah, it's, again, that, this is the stuff that just makes us magnify God because he's just so beyond us, right? So yeah, so it's, it's, it's couched, God's immutability, he cannot change, is couched in his very name. He is the I am. Um, one of the more famous proofs, texts for this is James 1.17, which tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, this is a metaphor that James uses that is a little bit lost on our contemporary society, but when we break it down, it's pretty amazing. So, what is it? Why was James call God here the Father of lights? It's bizarre. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that every time you look at the light sky, God is the father of that light? Uh, I guess that's true, but that's not what he's talking about. And this is the only time in the whole Bible, by the way, that God is ever referred to as the father of lights. Like, what does it mean to be the father of lights? Well, he's actually telling us that God is immutable. He is the father of that which is unchanging. And light is a metaphor here for what is unchanging. And here's why. Because he compares that God is the father of lights, so he is light, and what that means is that there is no shadow due to change. God is pure light. There is no shadow with God. He's, he's light and no shadow. And he tells us that he kind of peeks us into the metaphor a little bit and tells us, well, what does that mean? It means that with God, there's no variation and no change. So the idea is that when an object moves into the light and then casts a shadow, the shadow is essentially, according to this metaphor, the shadow is essentially showing you change. It's showing you that this object moved and it now has a different relation to the sun. Shadow is sort of a, a, an evidence of movement or change, at least how they thought of it in the philosophy of their time. And so he's borrowing from the philosophy of their time to say in the same way that you associate shadow with movement and measurement and change, here's what you need to about, know about God. You'll never find shadow because he never moves, he never changes. There's no variation and there's no change. So instead of thinking of him measuring his change according to the, sh the shadow being cast from the light, he is the light. We are the shadows. He's just light, he's the father of light and within him is no variation or shadow 
of change. It's, it's a metaphor that we wouldn't really use today, but again, James is, is using a metaphor to make this point, that there's no trace, there's no hint, there's no evidence whatsoever that God not only changes, but that there's even variation. There's not even different levels of God. He's just one thing consistently, always, never will be something different. There's no shadow. There's no point, source, or light. We get shadow because the light comes from somewhere. Right. right. Mm -hmm. If we are surrounded by light, if we are in the light, like if we're underwater, if we're in, then there's no shadow. Right, yeah. Because it's all around us. Yeah. Which is, I think, kind of what you were saying. But... I'm, I'm sure that's what it is. I don't even pretend to understand the metaphor perfectly. There, there's lots of good materials out there. Maybe that's more what it is. But thankfully, he, does, he, he explains the metaphor to us that yeah. there is no variation or change. And so we have a very clear biblical testimony of the immutability of God, right? God does not change. And we saw it in Psalm 103 too. I accidentally, did I put James 117 twice? Yes, I did. That was a mistake. Uh, we also have Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So this is a, not so much talking about the whole character of God, but it says specifically he has a mind that cannot be changed. God's plans can't be changed. His thoughts can't be changed. Nothing about how he thinks or what he's planned can be changed. And then that's why it goes on to say, so if he says he's going to do something... You can expect he's going to do it because his promises, his word comes from his character and nature. And his character and nature is not like man, mutable. It's very different than man. It's immutable. So if his nature can't change, then the promises that come from that nature are also unchanging. So the reason the word of God cannot be changed is because it springs forth from an unchanging nature. The promises of God cannot be broken because they spring forth from an unbroken God, right? So he is not a man that he can change. God does not change. His mind doesn't change. His plans don't change. Nothing about him changes. We also have 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I love this. Here, what Paul is essentially saying here is that God's inability to change is not a choice that God makes. Like, it's not like God is, is mutable, but then says, you know what, when I think about it, uh, being faithful is way better. So even though I could be unfaithful, I'm going to choose to be faithful. Timothy is telling us that were God to be unfaithful, it would actually be a very internal contradiction of his character and nature. To ask God to be unfaithful is like asking a, a fish to breathe out of water. Like, it, it, it can't. That's not what it, it does. It's physically impossible. Say, describing God as an unfaithful God is literally describing a square circle. What is a square circle? It, it doesn't exist. God's very character and nature. In order for God to be unfaithful, he would have to deny what he is. He would have to be that which he is not, which is an absurdity. It's a logical absurdity, right? So God can't help but be faithful, which is why the book of Hebrews and elsewhere tells us that it's impossible for God to lie. It's, it, it's, it's not just something he chooses not to, to do. He cannot do it. He can't lie. He can't be unfaithful because he is what he is. And he is unchanging and he is faithful and he cannot change. In other words, he can't move from I'm faithful today, but maybe tomorrow I'll be unfaithful. 
by definition, his, his character is unchanging, so he can never deny himself. He can never become that which is what he is not, right? He is the unchanging God. So we have a lot of proofs. I'm sorry, did someone, I thought someone was saying something. We have a lot of proofs from Scripture, direct proofs of God's unchanging character. But as we like to do, I like to bring in some of the other attributes, some, even though we haven't gotten to these, all of them, just because I like to see how all the attributes of God work together. And we can deduce every attribute from the other. And when we get to divine simplicity, that all makes sense. But that's further down the road. So, uh, but I want us to see that God is immutable based on other attributes. Number one, God's decrees are immutable. What God says he will do, those cannot change. And so that implies that he himself cannot change. Um, God will not change his own decrees. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So I love the comparison there. He's saying, notice men make plans, they make decrees, and it's very easy to frustrate those. It's very easy, oh, nope didn't go according to plan. Nope, I changed my mind that it wasn't actually a good plan. That's how men operate, but God is the exact opposite. God never says, ooh, that plan didn't go as I was expecting it to. I should probably do something different, right? He never changes his own plans. His plans remain forever to every generation. So he will not self-change his plans. Additionally, we cannot change them. So God has decrees and plans that he himself will not change, but then it begs the question, well, what if we change it? What if we get in the way? What if my free will ruins what he wants to do, right? But we cannot frustrate his plans. This is the very heart and soul of the book of Job. This is what Job, after all of his suffering, this is what Job took away. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God's plans and decrees He does not change them, and we cannot thwart them. His decrees are unchanging. Now, the only qualification to that that sometimes confuses people is God will sometimes reveal what we call conditional plans. So God might say, if you do this, then I'll do this, and then people don't do that, so then he doesn't do that, right? Like, just use a silly example. If God were to reveal to me, if you eat an apple tomorrow, then I will give you another child, And then the next day I eat an orange and God doesn't give me another child, right? So God didn't change his plans. He he gave me a conditional plan and I didn't meet that condition. So that's actually an example of God being faithful to his plans. If you do this, I'll do this. I didn't do that. So then he doesn't. So sometimes people will pull examples from scripture like that where God says he's going to do something and then he doesn't do it and say, look, God does change his mind. He does change his plans. But when you Examine those texts more carefully. That's because there's conditional statements tied to them. So God can make conditional promises and conditional plans, but when he decrees to do something, it, it's unchangeable. He can't change it. He won't change it. Men can't thwart it, right? Any questions on that? Thoughts? I wanted to share this just because it's going to come up in the sermon this week, and it's going to be pretty controversial. This is a, another big debate that Christians have, um, but this week, just to give you a sneak peek, I'm, I'm going to essentially make the case that God predestines all things, ev- everything. Everything that ever happens is something God actually predestined and planned. And when you read the Reformed literature on immutability, they argue from a philosophical standpoint that that has to be, the, if God is immutable and his decrees are unchanging, then he actually has to decree everything. And next week, one of the, the main verse we're going to look at 
is this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so here's what that means. Creation does not change God's plans. It's not like God had, here's my ideal situation. And then he created and went, uh, it's, this ain't going to work out. I want to do something different. Now that I have them, now that I see it, I realize I want to do something different. Because God's plans generate from his eternal character, they are eternal plans. So if, if his plans can be thwarted, then he himself can be thwarted. So even creation itself does not change God's plans. Rather, creation is always part of the plan, right? If God's plans are eternal and creation can mess with that, then, then God's not actually eternal, and now he's not God. So the second one little atom in the universe does something God doesn't want it to do, he ceases being God, because his eternal plan was thwarted, right? The way we define his eternal plan is that he is present in all, then to even talk about him changing that introduces back in time that he is somehow handicapped by time. Yeah, and, yeah, and we're going to get to that. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not saying that to stop you. It's just... But the whole... I mean, it's just a, it's a moot point. Yeah. If God is present at all times, I mean, then we're... If, if we can accept that time is something we experience, but God is above it, and we can't know how. Uh, it, it seems, yeah. Okay. If God changed something, didn't say He made an error to begin with. Exactly. No, exactly. When he, when he says He is, then He is everything He is. Two thousand years ago, two thousand years in the future, it all is. Yeah. To Him. And we can't, I can't understand that. So, but to think that he could, that if he is, then he can't change because he can't go back and forth. Right. He, I mean, it's pretty. Another, another way to think of it, too, was up to a debate between a pastor and an atheist, and an atheist was saying, you know, for, for God to have thought of the plan of redemption, it would have taken him eternity, which means he could have never possibly have done it. Which is true if God is bound by time, right? But like you're saying, if God is in bound with people understand and know he's not bound by time, then, then it doesn't matter when that quote-unquote thought came into existence. But like you're saying, but if he's changeable, now there's a time-based process where then we have a problem with believers. Yeah, that's a good point. And God doesn't have a plan. God has I am. Right. Exactly. He, he doesn't plan it to make it happen. Yeah. It, when he thinks it, it is I am. No, to us, see. it looks like a plan. We, see, we saw that in creation. He spoke. And, and it was. Right. He, he, he didn't have to go down and build this and build that and put it all together. And so let me get really deep on you just based on this point and something that was just said. So, so here's a, another way of thinking about it. God's... Um, knowledge of the future because he is eternal and immutable is exactly backwards from us. So let me give you an example. I just dropped that pen. Did God know before the foundations of the world that I was going to do that? And if you answer yes, then we have to ask this question. How did God know that? 
And most Christians don't want to give that much thought. They just want to say, well, just because he's God. Well, let me ask you this. How, how do you know that I dropped the pen? Right, you saw it in time. So, so your knowledge of, of, of the event is based upon your, in how you encountered it, right? So you saw it, and now you have knowledge of it. And so that is a change in your being. Like, guess what? I just changed you. You're welcome. I changed you all today. You are different now than you were 30 seconds ago because there's new information in your head that didn't exist before. So when we say God knows the future, we have to ask the question, what relationship does God have to future events? Did he learn it? Like, did he learn the future the same way you just learned that I dropped the pen? Did he see it and then learn it? No. So here's the way human beings work is the, is the history happens. Things, things act in succession and then we learn them. But for God, things act in succession because he knew them, right? So for us, succession happens and then knowledge. For God, knowledge happens and then succession. In other words, everything that's happening is happening because God knew it. God's, God doesn't know it because he saw it. Because now we have God essentially learning. We have God seeing and learning. And now we have God changing. So the only way for God to not change is if every single little thing that happens is happening because God knew it. In other words, because God decreed it. He planned it. Things are happening because God is making them happen. And then in that sense, God is never learning knowledge. He's never learning new things. But if, if God merely foresees things happening, then he is, by definition, he is, he is taking knowledge on. And this is why we have people called open theists. They, re- they, they, they follow this logic out and they say, I don't want to be a Calvinist, but philosophically, uh, in order to not be a Calvinist, you're at some level having to affirm that God has a relationship to succession wherein succession is more prior than him. Succession happens and he learns it. And they say, so I would, my, my only two options now are to believe that God predestined everything or that God can learn. And they, they hate the predestining thing part so much, they'd, they'd rather believe in a God who learns. But what we would argue is once you say God can learn, you're admitting God can change. And once you say God can change, you now have no foundation to say he's going to be faithful tomorrow. What if he changes? What if he learns something new that changes his mind on every, oh gosh, I didn't know this. Okay, I'm just going to burn the world. I'm just, I'm just going to, oh, I didn't know that. Like, once you make God able to learn, you've lost God. That little tiny jump, you've lost God because he's now mutable. He's now changeable. Now you're into Mormonism, right? God is learning and you growing and progressing and becoming more of God every day and you can become a God. And all of that happens is this God's relationship to what we call succession, to time, to things happening. One is I think that we don't like to think of God like that because we try to bring God to our, we try to bring him to our understanding. Exactly. If we can't understand God like yep. fully, then it would be easier for us to say, like, well, God has to think of this and then do it. Where it's like, no, God doesn't have to think of anything, it just is. Ex- it. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I think that's the first one. The second one, may, I may be shocked to you about after your sermon. Like, sure. Like, um, so where does that put people with like double predestination and say God predestined who he's going to save and predestined who he's not. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the, the short answer is, number one, um, in my conversations with people on double predestination, uh, the debate is way more nuanced than people think it is, meaning I don't think people always define that, those words the same way. And uh, so like the way some Reformed theologians, and this is how, well, this is how all Reformed theologians pass it, is they say, well, God doesn't double predestine. And what that means is that God doesn't actively send people to hell. He passively sends people to hell. And that is true. But what we would say is when we're talking about God's decree, um, everything from that perspective is active. But then once it happens in time, we can use time-bound language like passive. So let me, let me give an analogy. That doesn't make sense to you, but let me give an analogy. Um, bobsledders, right, uh, they, 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 they're, on the, they're on their hill and they, they're doing their thing and then they push the bobsled, right? So they actively cause that bobsled to go down. Like everything that happens after that is because they actively caused it, right? But once they're on the hill, once they're, on, once they're actually moving, now it's appropriate to say things like, well, in order to stop, they have to actively break. In order to keep going, they have to passively do nothing. Right? Does that make sense? So in the moment, there's a difference between actively doing something and passively not doing something. But from that very get-go, there's no passiveness. It's, it's all... So in the sense of God's decree, double predestination is true. God, God decreed all things, which means if someone goes to heaven, he decreed that. If someone goes to hell, he did not, do, or he decreed that, right? So in that sense, it's always active. But in time, once, once God actually creates in people, God does not have to, at that point, push people into hell the way he has to kind of push them into heaven. So there is a passive, there's a passivity in God's damnation in time, but before time, all, all, the whole decree is entirely active. Does that, does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Um, I just think it's an easy conclusion for myself, though I know not everyone agrees with it. But I think um, probably people who are reformed or Calvinists, they won't use the word, well, God sent someone to hell, like, no, God allowed them to. Like, he's right. actually, because God can't do anything evil, and God can't cause, you know, fires and earthquakes and things like that, because why would, why would a good God do something so evil? But, so they won't use that language as well. Like, well, he allows these things to happen. Right. So that's right. Maybe that's the passiveness that I think. Yeah, it, no, it, it is. And that is what Reformed people want to do. And like I said, there's a place for it. If you read through any of the early Reformers, they're going to use language like allow, passive. But, but they would all clarify that, that those words are only appropriate once creation starts. So it's just like if, if I, again, if I were to ask a bobsledder in the middle of his, like I'm, I'm radio into him, and I were to say, hey, how do you make this thing go? He'd say, I don't have to make it go. It's, it's going by itself. I just, don't, I just don't interfere. So when we ask God today, hey, this person's going, how do you make that person go to hell? God would say, I, I don't make that person go to hell. They're going all by themselves. All I have to do is do nothing. Right? If you ask the bobsledder while he's bobsledding, how do you make this thing go? I, I don't. I just, I just do nothing. I passively. But that doesn't apply to when the, when the bobsled is stationary. Right? So before, before creation, all things are actively decreed. But once God's actually in time working, sometimes he doesn't have to do anything. He just lets it happen. Right? So it, it's, it just depends on when we're talking. Yeah. And I think, like I said, the wind's key because 
I, I think we, we would say we've known reform people who um, not just hold to double election or double predestination, but they actively kind of preach it as part of the gospel. Yeah. So it was like the hyper-Calvinists who say, the word of God is out there saving people and I don't have to do anything. And we would say it's not true. It's like Bob Sutter says, I just break, I don't do anything, it just breaks by itself. Like, no, if you don't break, you're going to crash and die. Exactly, yeah. We have to share the gospel. Exactly. That's a, yeah, that's, that's a good, that's the other end of the analogy. It's really good. Lots of those things, though, are rationalizations because people can't accept the fact that God sent somebody to hell. Exactly. And, and I, think, I think that's kind of what Autumn was getting at. Yeah, we're, we're trying to make the language flowery. Yeah, no, that, I think that's exactly what it is. Yes, that's true, but but are you denying the decree? Like that's what I would ask the Calvinists. Like, are you blaming the person instead of God? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Same thing in free will. Yes. Yep. Yep. That's all really good stuff. So, okay, let's continue. Uh, another attribute that we can deduce from and prove. We've kind of already talked about it, so I'll fly through it. God is eternal. If God's eternal, then He, by definition, has to be immutable. Why? Because change is a time language. Bill was said this word for word earlier. In order to change, you have to move. There has to be succession. You have to go from one thing to another. So change can only happen in time. So if God is outside of time, then change is impossible. He can't move from one thing to the next. There's no, we talked about this last week, the mystery of God's eternality. There's no succession. There's no chronological order. He just always is. So you can't change if there's no time because change requires time. Um, God is infinite. This also demands that he be without change because he cannot change in location. He cannot move. Um, he, he fills all spaces, so at least, at least change, changing in the sense of moving direction or being something he is not, it, he cannot be. So maybe this one doesn't prove immutability entirely, but it, it gets us somewhere, right? God can't move from one location to another if he's infinite. Uh, his perfection also proves that he is immutable um, because if he is the utmost perfect being, then what, what need for change would there be? Uh, in order to, if you, if you change positively, then that means you lacked something beforehand, which means God would have to be imperfect moving into the perfect square. But a perfect being is something that was never imperfect. So there's no room for God to improve. There's nothing he can improve. And obviously, if he were to regress, then he's no longer perfect. And uh, he never was lesser, right? So if, if you're going to affirm that God is the ultimate perfect being, then you simply cannot affirm that he ever was not something good or that he ever will be something bad, right? Um, so again, the, as you've seen, the, the, the Mormon concept of God is just so broken. We see that every single week. It's really a disaster. God's aseity, who remembers, we've talked about this a few times, who remembers what the word aseity means? What does it mean when we say God is assay? Yeah, you're there. Yeah, self-determined or independent. Uh, Aseity essentially means that God needs nothing other than himself. He is self-existent. He's not dependent upon anything for anything. For anything. There's, there's nothing about God that is dependent upon something else. And so what this means is that God cannot have any need. And so this at least proves that God cannot be improved. Because the only way you would make a change, an intentional change, is if you lack something and then you possessed it. But if God has no lack, 
then he cannot change. But more to the point, in order, anytime you change, you are technically, at least positively, but even to some degree negatively, but if you make a good change, you're receiving, right? So if you don't know that one plus one equals two, and I teach you one plus one equals two, you've now changed. There's something about you, your knowledge that was different than it was before, and, and that means you received it. The only way for you to change is to receive. Physically, metaphysically, you have to receive. And so God cannot receive from something else. And why is that? Because everything we have is something God already gave. Because God is ase and has no, he is totally independent. That means everything else that's created is actually dependent upon him. And that's why Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul's whole point is that we are entirely dependent upon God for everything. Every thought that I have, without God, I couldn't have that thought. Every breath that I take, without God, I couldn't have that breath. So God is the one who gives to everything. And so if we were to give back to God, like if God needed something, like God was like, oh shoot, I forgot who the first president of the United States was. And I said, hey, it's George Washington. God just received something from me. But what's the problem? God is the one who gave it to me in the first place. How could God give something to us that he lacked? You can't give what you don't have. So if God gives everything, then that means he cannot receive. He has no need to receive. Does that make sense? Anything we try to give to God, he gave to us first, right? So that means he had it, which means it's not, we're not giving him anything he doesn't already have. So by definition, if God is ase, he cannot receive, he cannot even need to receive something. Just real quick, Jesse, before you go, I love the way Stephen Charnock says, just so simply, he who hath not being from another cannot be but what he always is. I mean, if God is ase, if his being just exists, then the only logical conclusion from that is that he just has to be. There's, there's no other option. Once you affirm God is ase, that his being is just being, he doesn't get it from somewhere else, then the logical conclusion is that he just has to be what he always is. There's no logical reason for change once you affirm that God is the necessary being that exists and that he always has and he needs nothing, right? Jesse, what were you going to say? Right, and, and we, would, we would say that we, we, can, we can give things to God in a sense, but what we give to God is not changing him because we are only giving what he first gave to us. Well, yeah, I understand that, but you are giving, maybe you're just returning it. <laughs> right, sure. So yeah, so let me rephrase. We, we can give things to God, but the idea is that when we give them to God, it, we're not giving something that he lacked. God is not ever taking something new on, right? So yeah, we, we give God love, we give him praise, we give him loyalty, uh, we, we do we get, so I should have been more clear. We can give things to God, but the idea is not that he lacked it, we provided it. That's, that's not, whatever we're giving is just merely what we already got from him. He already had it in its fullness. Even glory, even the glory that we receive or that we give God in all, for all creation is not receiving more or new glory because the inter-Trinitarian relationship is more glorious. It, they provide for their self-existent being more glory than even we can. So we are, we're, even, we're not even giving God more glory than he had before he created us. Like, we can't even do that. There, there's nothing you have that God says, oh, thank you, I needed that. That would be like trying to give uh, 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's exactly. Right. Think think of it this way: the the idea is that God can't be added to because He's infinite. So, um, if if you have an infinite amount of water and I pour a cup of water into that, did it get bigger? No. <laughs> The, it's still infinite. God, God can't, there, you can't add to God. You can't add to him. So it's not like he's got this much glory, but if, if, only, if only we showed up, then he would finally get to that, that final stage of, oh, there's the, he can't, he's already infinitely glorious and he's already receiving in himself infinite glory. So when we give God glory, we're just pouring glory into an infinite glory sea. It's, we're not adding to it. Then, yeah, maybe that's a, a help, more helpful way to put it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Two, two things. Uh, funnier, one funnier than the, the serious note. The funny one is my kids at the age right now where they're like, so, so God created pizza, <laughs> right? They, they're, they're working through that understanding of like how God created everything So we talk about Sunday school. Like when God created pizza, you know, like, well, no, he didn't create pizza, but he created the idea of thoughts in a man's brain, right? So ultimately everything goes back to that. So it's kind of funny because my kids work through this in different ways, right? In that way we do as a child, like how do I make reconcile the world of God with everything? But I think Partly why the mean beauty of God is an important doctrine um, on multiple fronts, and why I think it's not just simply for deep theology or deep thinking, is so when I was in college, and we've probably all heard this analogy, um, but the analogy of can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right? And, and this, so that always hung me up because I couldn't figure out the answer because if he's all powerful, how can he not? And if he can, then how can he? Lift. Um, and so I think a lot of that is, is simple um, philosophical questions that seem kind of complex, but they're really not, right? Yeah. If, we, if we change the question, it makes a lot more sense. So I, so I think in that sense of, um, you know, can God tell a lie? No, we, that's the easy answer for the Christian, but we put it in a different context, honestly, we struggle with the right. concept. Yeah. So like Sean I said, right? you have no being from another, cannot, but what he always has is. You know, that's it's a, like you're saying, like the psalm, which I'm sure you're getting reference to the psalm, you know, I am the Lord of a thousand cattle on the hills. Like, what, what can you possibly bring to me? There's nothing. In fact, if I was the you'd be in trouble. Right. Because um, I would be lacking. So I, that, that question just really messed me up. Because I'm like, well, how can God be powerful but not make the rock? But now it's, it's pretty simple because I, I changed the direction of the hard things God can do. And I have to be actually okay with it. Not okay, but I embrace it because the thing... God, he doesn't change. He would be in vast trouble if he did. Right? Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the biblical understanding of power is not the ability to always do the, something positive. That's a logical presupposition the Bible doesn't take. The Bible is very comfortable telling us things God can't do or implying things God can't do. But the Bible's presentation is that there are some limitations which are strengths. Not every limitation is a weakness. Some limitations are strengths. My favorite analogy for this is, let's say you were about to join a, a football team and you got to pick between two teams. And one of the teams, we'll call them the Bears, 
the Bears have the ability to lose. They're really good. They might win every game this season, but it's possible they could lose. And then there's the Cardinals, and you can join the Cardinals. And here's the Cardinals have a big limitation, huge limitation. They are unable to lose. They can't do it. No matter how hard they try, they can't lose. Which team would you rather be on? The team that has no limitations. They could win or they could lose. Or the team that has a very severe limitation. It's impossible to lose. Right? Everyone knows what team they want to be. I want to give me the severe limitation. Because that limit is a strength. Uh, not, all, not every cannot do equals a weakness. Cannot, and this is what James, or this is what Paul said to Timothy. God cannot deny himself. That's a strong limitation. I don't want a God who can deny himself. So can God create a rock to have No, he can't. Absolutely not. He can't deny himself. He cannot create something stronger than him. He can't make himself. And these are limitations of strength. They're not limitations of weaknesses. Yeah. Um, another, and I really want to talk about, I, I may push it to next week, what Jesse said. There, there actually is a way we, we can, I wouldn't suggest telling your children this. But there actually is a way we can, dis- we can discuss God being the creator of pizza in that um, some people have denied the immutability of God. I'll give it my best go. But if this is confusing, I'll, I'll try to clarify it next week. Some people have tried to deny the, ability, the immutability of God by saying, once God created the world, he changed because he went from not being the creator to the creator. And so in, in any book you get on the attributes of God, any one worth its salt, they're going to give a lengthy exhortation as to how God is the eternal creator. He, is, he never went from not being the creator to the creator. And it's kind of complicated, but the idea is that um, God is the eternal creator in, in the sense, going back to this, the thing of plan, in the sense that everything that is made has always been the blueprint in his mind. So that because that's always been his plan, that makes him eternally the creator of that plan. Since, since the plan itself is eternal with him in his mind, he is the creator of that plan. And so in that sense, he's always the creator. And when we see things, for example, even like the Bible calls Jesus eternal father, who is Jesus the father of before we exist? But there is a very real sense in which Jesus was our father before we existed um, as it relates to, like, just to use a brief analogy, it's kind of like how... Um, you would still call, like, if I, let's just imagine, trust me, I cannot do this, but just imagine that I built this building with my bare hands. You would always refer to me as the building's creator. Like, even when I go to sleep at night, I'm not in the act of creating, but I'm still its creator. I I still have the creator relationship to this building. Even though I'm not in the act of creating, I am its creator because I made it. And with God, because of his eternality, in his infiniteness, that exists on the other side too. In the same way that I remain the creator even when I'm not in the act of creating after, God remains creating when he's not in the act of creating before. Does that, does that make some sense? How someone is the creator when they're not in the act of creating. So God was the creator of the world before he made it. He wasn't in act of creating yet. Um, but even some of the theologians would be mad that I used the word act there, but it is kind of complicated. But let me just assure you with this, there is, maybe I'm not good at it, but there is an incredibly rigorous philosophical defense for how God is the eternal creator, that he didn't become the creator. But we may have to push that to a different time. I may need to restudy that section in Charnock. So in a sense, God is the creator of pizza since it's part of his plan, which he is the eternal creator of. <laughs> but I, I do know what you mean, though. It's not like when you go to Pizza Hut, they pray, 
and Jesus comes down and boom, there's a pizza, right? Like we, we created the pizza, but there is a, a way in which we are so dependent upon God and what he did that we can still attribute that. I know that's what you were saying. You know, that is, but even in their mind, it's more like, so was Jesus walking around like slinging pizza when he was alive? Meaning, right. <laughs> yeah. Did he, yeah. Have, did he have a concept of, did he eat pizza? We're like, no, he didn't eat pizza. He's right. ultimately the creator of pizza. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we said, we said, hey, yeah. Flat bread and sauce is pretty common. That's right, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, real quick, I'll just one deep point that I was, since you read a bunch on this. Do people attribute the fact that the son was begotten to his uh, creation? He's eternal creation being? So, the, so, we would say, obviously, mm. the son has always existed, but the son was begotten and blessed. Right, right. So, therefore, was he in the, in the act of creating? Like, was Jesus in the act of creating because of that, or was God the Father? Oh, gotcha. Like, is he the, yeah. That, that is a good question. To my knowledge, I don't think they would affirm that, but it's possible. I don't know for sure. That's, yeah, that's a really good thought. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I want to get to the really juicy stuff, so I'm going to kind of fly through this. Um, God is immortal. First Timothy 6, God alone has immortality. All loss is a form of destruction, therefore God cannot destruct, so God cannot lose. It's impossible for God to lose anything. Because once you say he can lose one thing, you've lost the ability to logically stop that. Like you say, well, God can, he can forget something. Well, then why can't he forget everything? And then why can't he lose, if he can lose memory, why can't he lose power? If he can, right? So if God can lose even one thing, then it's a slippery slope to God can actually just die. He can just cease to exist. He can be conquered. But if he is immortal, then he therefore cannot change. Um, God is omniscient. He cannot gain or lose knowledge or wisdom. So if you affirm that God knows all things, you have to affirm some sort of immutability. He can't learn, right? He can't become more wise or less wise if he's omniscient. So, so those, basically here's what we've done so far. And I'll try to go through this real fast because I know it's getting late. Uh, we've, we've, we've talked about explicit scriptural passages that teach God cannot change. And then we also looked at implications from other things we know about God. So we've looked at two different ways of determining God cannot change. The Bible teaches it explicitly, and then we can deduce it from other things the Bible teaches. That's all we were trying to cover here. But there's one important thing we really need to get to. And it, I'll, I'll make it really fast. If you would like, if by the end of it you're like, we, we should cover that again next week, I'm happy to do it. But I'll try to just go real fast. But in order for God to be immutable, he has to also be impassable. If he's immutable, he's impassable. Does anybody know what it means to be impassable? So this is where the immutability of God gets people really fired up and, and either mad or frustrated or confused. So you're probably going to feel one of those. Let me read to you just briefly from the London Baptist Confession, but almost any confession on God you'll see says something like this. And I'm talking even if you go way back to the second century, third, fourth century really more so. We don't have much from the second and third. But from fourth century onward, anytime you see someone define God, you're almost always going to see this phrase. The Lord our God is without body, parts, or passions, who is immutable. Impassibility means that God has no passions. And what is passions? It's actually just a fancy word for emotions. In order for God to be unchanging, he cannot have emotions. So what this means is that God does not feel love or hatred. God does not have love or hatred or anger or jealousy or frustration or anxiety or depression or fear 
or confusion. He does not have passions or emotions. And the reason for this is quite simple because the change in emotion is actually a significant change to it, your being or your essence. People who are incredibly depressed are entirely different people once they start taking medication that kills their depression. It is a huge change, right? In other words, if God could get depressed and you prayed to him today and then he cheered up tomorrow and you prayed to him, you would have had a very different God responding in very different ways, right? You don't want a God who can become depressed, but that also means he can't become happy because he can't change. He doesn't have an emotional state. And the reason this bothers people is because it's not hard to go through your Bible and find tons of Bible verses about God's emotions, right? We can find these kinds of verses all over the place. And so typically the way Christians have historically understood is that any Bible verse that speaks of God's divine emotions, things like regret or repentance or grief or anger or love, are we've talked about this or what we call analogical language. Analogical language just means analogous. God is speaking to us through analogies. He's taking our human experience and saying, yeah, what, what, Think of me kind of like how, kind of like you've got that love thing going on, think about me like that. You've got that anger thing going on, think of me like that. It's, a, it's an analogy, it's not a direct correlation, it's not precisely accurate. It's another form of anthropomorphism, which we've talked about, the way the Bible will attribute non-human emotions to to God or to other non-human things. This is one of them. Emotions are a human attribute that we will sometimes attribute to non-human things metaphorically, right? Like I might say, oh, that, that pizza is so sad that I couldn't eat it. It's not actually sad, I attribute. We do that with God anthropomorphically. God is sad, but God is not actually feeling sadness the way we feel sadness. And this again goes into the same thing with God's physical attributes. When the Bible very clearly talks about God having eyes and feet and hands, and, and we would say, well, that's, that's, that's analogy, that's metaphor, that's analogical. But what Christians historically have said is, yeah, the same thing is happening when the Bible talks about God grieving or regretting or repenting or being happy or being angry. These are human things we are giving to God. He is condescending to our weakness, trying to help us understand that which cannot be understood, but they are not precisely accurate. How can we not think of those terms, though? Otherwise, we would think of God as a machine. That's, exa- yeah, that's exactly what the, all of the, ref- the, the theologians have said. God, God condescended to us and gave us the only possible categories we could understand as finite beings. If, 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 we, don't, if we didn't think in these terms, we not only could not understand God truthfully, but then afterward, all that would be left over, yeah, he'd basically just be like a rock, like how could we possibly understand them? Yeah, that, that's a great thought, and that's basically what they've said. Um, I can't remember. I had some quotes lined up. I can't remember if they were. So this is, what, this is how Charnock talks about anal, anal, analogous language. But God accommodates himself in the scriptures to our weak capacity. God hath no more of a proper repentance than he hath of a real body. Though he, in accommodation to our weakness, ascribes to himself the members of our bodies to set out Uh, to our understanding the greatness of his perfections, we must not conclude him a body like us. So because he is said to have anger and repentance, we must not conclude him to have passions like us. 
When we cannot fully comprehend him as he is, he clothes himself with our nature in his expressions that we may apprehend him as we are able and by an inspection into ourselves learn something of the nature of God. Yet those human ways of speaking ought to be understood in a manner agreeable to the infinite excellency and majesty of God and are only designed to mark out something in God which hath a resemblance with something in us. As we cannot speak to God as gods, but we can only speak to God as men. So we can understand him speaking to us as God unless he condescends and speaks to us like a man. God therefore frames his language to our dullness, not to his own state, and informs us by our own phrases what we would have us learn of his nature. As nurses talk broken language to young children. In all such expressions, therefore, we must ascribe the perfection we conceive in them to God and lay the imperfection at the door of the creature. Right? Yes, a.k.a. it's hard. Yeah, it's, it is, it's very, very hard to grasp. I think sometimes because we can't separate ourselves from our emotions. I mean, it, it's impossible to imagine why it's not emotional. Right, exactly. That God is not emotional in that sense, that he has to be anthropomorphic with us. Um, you know, I was, this is related, but kind of a funny subject. It always cracks me up when we're watching a movie with my mom, and it's about these dogs on an adventure, and they're, you know, exploring the city. And the dogs, you know, are in a little uh, rickety race car, you know, that is made out of a, a box, and they jump 45 feet through the air. And she's like, that's just unrealistic. I'm like, let me get this straight. The fact that dogs jump 45 feet in the air is unrealistic. Not the fact they're on an adventure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, that's, but that's like, uh, ironic because that's what we are, right? I can tell you a story of a talking dog, and you're like, no problem. But we say God is impassable, and it's, it, it just, we can't fathom that because we're, we're emotional creatures. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yep. Actually, it's how comforting that he's not Yes. Yeah, we're going to conclude that, but I still want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, 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 that's right. Because, I mean, you just think about, you know, marriage, how many times you look back at times you've gotten emotional or with your children, and you wish you had it, you wish you could go back and change that moment, and you're thankful that the father of us isn't like us. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and I'll get to that. Like I said, I'm, I feel bad rushing in. Just we're already 15 minutes late. So if, like I said, if, if we want to go back to this next week, we can. But let me, let me just finish kind of what, with what Becky's saying. One more thing, and then we'll get to why this is actually good news. So um, it's important to know that because God never changes, especially emotionally, uh, we will sometimes speak of him changing emotionally uh, when, when, when what's actually happening is our relation to him is changing. But when my relation to God changes, that is not the same thing as a change in God occurring. Let me give um, a couple examples. I'll give one from Charnock. Charnock one time talked about, if I put my hand, if I put a tree on my right side and I put my hand, my right hand on it, and I can say, this tree is on my right. And then I turn, I turn around completely and I put my left hand on it and I say, this tree is on my left. The tree did not change. I'm, I'm technically speaking in a sense in which it did. The tree went from being on my right and it went to being on my left. And that did happen. That's accurate. But more precisely, it wasn't the tree that moved. The tree did go from one to another, but it was because of my movement, not its movement. So sometimes we speak of God changing. For example, God, before I repented and believed in Christ, God hated me. He was angry with me. Now that I've repented and believed in Christ, God loves me. 
He is not angry with me. See how, what does that sound like? That sounds like God felt this way about me. And now he has changed his feelings. But a better way of understanding it is God in his perfect essence always feels about that which is unrighteous, what he should, when he feels, I use more, and that which is righteous, the way he should. And then we move ourselves from one category to the other. We move ourselves, well, it's God moving us, but God moves us from being unrighteous to righteous. So then we experience a change from God's displeasure to God's happiness. And so we speak of God once was angry and he now was not, but it was not God changing his emotions. It was us changing our relationship to God. At first we put him with on our right hand and then we, we turned and we put him on our left. But God doesn't change in his feelings toward you. You change in your relationship toward God. Is, is how they've explained it. Let me just read Charnock and then we'll, we'll close. He says this, the will of God is unchangeably set to love righteousness and hate iniquity and from this hatred to punish it. And if a righteous creature contracts the wrath of God or a sinful creature hath the communications of God's love, it must be a change in themselves. And here's some funny analogies he gives. Is the sun changed when it hardens one thing and softens another? Uh according to the dispensation of several objects. Or when the sun makes a flower more fragrant and a dead carcass more noisome. There are diverse effects, but the reason of that diversity is not in the sun, but in the subject. The sun is the same and produceth those different effects by the same quality of heat. So if an unholy soul approached to God, God looks angrily upon him. If a holy soul comes before him, the same immutable perfection in God draws out his kindness towards him. So he uses that same analogy. The same sun can make something stink and boil and bubble and make another thing bloom and fragrance. So obviously the difference is not in the sun. It's in how that subject relates to the sun. A dead carcass receives heat differently than a flower receives heat. Likewise, those in Christ receive God differently than those outside of Christ receive God. But when you transition, when you go from a dead carcass to a flower, the sun never changed, the heat never changed, your relationship to the sun changed. And then let me just conclude why this, why this is good. Like, why is it good that God hath no emotions? I've said hath, been reading too much Charnock. Um, number one, a simple one, is this helps us make sense of conflicting verses in the Bible. Let me just give you one, though I could give you a lot, or two, comparison. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 5.5. 5. I could go through the Psalms, and I could give you verse after verse after verse of God hating people. He hates all those who do iniquity. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates evildoers. So if you know someone that is outside of Christ and they, do, and they sin, I've got a lot of Bible verses to tell you that God hates them. But then we are also told that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So when you meet an unbeliever, does God love or hate them? What's the biblical answer? Both. And we don't have a Bible contradiction because these words are not supposed to be communicating these exact precise realities, right? They're, they're analogies for something in God and so we don't have to necessarily make them the same way that we would have to do that. Like because our emotions are finite creaturely emotions, it's very difficult for us to hate and love things at the same time. Although even we can do that, right? Even we can do that. You ask any parent whose child has committed a horrible atrocity, there's something about their natural affections they just can't hate their children. 
but their child did something so horrible they do. So even in creaturely affections, we can to some degree hate and love at the same time. But largely, we can understand in Scripture, because these are, these are, these are analogous phrases, they're anthropomorphic language, we don't have to expect it to be so precise that God would never say, I hate and love that person. They're both analogies, so in different ways, we can conceive of God hating and loving, right? Does that help make any sense at all? Autumn? Good qualification. It's really, it, 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 yeah, it's really neither. That's, that's a better qualification. It's neither. Yeah. But there is something true. There, there, there's, there is a true relationship that we, the, the, the only way we can comprehend it is to comprehending it in, in some way it's hatred, in some way it's love. But you're right. It's, that's how we quantify it as humans. That's right. That's, that's what our brains do. But it's, it's, not, it's not either of those technically. That's a good qualification. It's, it's not both. It's neither. Yeah. Because he doesn't love and hate like we do, right? Um, so it, it helps us with these verses. But the more, the more important reason is exactly what Becky was getting at. Uh, you, we don't want to pray to a God who can lose his temper. We don't want to pray to a God who can get depressed or fearful or anxious or regret. Can you imagine? God, why did you do this? God, why did this happen? And he shouts from heaven, I regret it. I'm so sorry. I was just so excited and I actually rushed to conclusions and I was just, I was so excited. I didn't mean to do that, right? How terrible. There's even in the Psalms, we're even told the righteous man does not budge when he hears bad news. Like even we as human beings to some degree see there, there's something righteous in, in being a rock. Good news comes, I'm the same. Bad news comes, I'm the same. We as humans are trying to get there. We are trying to become, I want to be the same person. I want to have integrity and hope in all situations. So how much more so with God? Is there anything happening in the world that makes God fret, that makes him scared, that makes him afraid, that makes him worry? And, and we would say no, but here's what, we have, here's what we have to do to be consistent though. We don't get to just arbitrarily say all those bad emotions, God can't have those. He can't have regret or fear or anxiety or depression. But all the good emotions he can have. He can have love and joy and, and, and excitement. and pe No, emotions, passions are a package deal, right? They're passions. He either has passions or he doesn't. So it might sound sad to say like, oh, God doesn't love God doesn't feel love. I want him to feel love. Well, do you want him to feel depression? Because they come together, right? They come together. So it's better that we have a God who is unmoving, unchanging, consistent always, no matter what happens in creation. That, that's amazing. Um, and that's what makes immutability the foundation of all our hope. If God could change, his promises could change. If God could change, his faithfulness could change. If God could change... We don't want to live in a universe where God can change, right? So God's immutability is the foundation for all of our hope. As Charnock says, what comfort could it be to pray to a God that like a chameleon changed colors every day, every moment? Can you imagine the horror of thinking, I'm going to pray to God today and I'm going to pray to him tomorrow, but tomorrow he might be something completely different. I don't know what I'm getting tomorrow. I don't know which God I'm getting tomorrow. I've known people who've grown up in families where the dad is alcoholic, and one of the worst things about it isn't just the alcoholism and the abuse, it's the inconsistency. I have no idea who I'm going home to today. I don't know what husband I'm getting today. I don't know what dad I'm getting today. We don't want God who could become an alcoholic. I don't know what God I'm getting today. That's terrifying, right? It's good news that he can't change. Um, but this, let me conclude with this because this is important. Even though these analogous languages are not 
supposed to be communicating something precisely and technically accurate, it's important for us to understand that you should still feel comfortable using the language. God gave us the language, right? He, he gave it to us as a present. He said, you can't understand me, so use this. So here's what I don't want you thinking. I don't want you thinking the purpose of this class is to go home, and then when your kids say, Mommy, Daddy, does God love me? Well, actually, technically, love is a creaturely affection, and God hath no passions, and so no, God doesn't technically love you. That's not the right answer. When, you're, when your kid asks, does God love me, the right answer is yes, because that's what the Bible says. God gave us this language. Acts chapter 5 says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. So it's okay to tell your children, don't sin against God, because then you make God sad. Like this is, the Bible gave us this language as a present. God said, look, you can't understand me, but here's a gift. This will help you use it. So please don't hear me saying you're a bad theologian if you ascribe passions to God. The Bible ascribes passions to God. So use the language, but understand, just as, as Charnock said, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that language, and we need to be able as theologians in the back of our head to ascribe the kernel of truth to God, and then as he said, to leave the imperfections at the door of the creature right? So God feels sadness. There's something true in there and God can keep it. And then there's some that's not true and, and we'll just blame it on ourselves, <laughs> right? That's what Chardon said. So, so don't be afraid to, to speak of God as having emotions, but just understand in the back of your head, well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not like when I fall in love with Layla that God felt that way about me, right? You don't want God's love to be like my love. <laughs> you want it to be way better, way different, altogether different. And it's so different that it's really not even Love, at least not as we think of it, right?